If you have your Bibles this morning, we're going to continue our series preaching through the book of 1 Timothy, and so invite you there. Uh, please go ahead and turn there. We're going to be in chapter 2, uh, and what I want to do is uh, just make a couple of commitments uh, together, and then um, we will stop and we will pray, and then um, we'll get to the text itself. Uh, first commitment is this. Um, and I think this is important for us individually as well as for us corporately uh, that we need to do this every so often where we need to commit to, again, individually and corporately, we commit to let the Word of God speak to us. There is not a man or woman in this room who can stand up here and say anything that's worthwhile. You believe that? Oh, wait a minute. What are we paying you for? No, no, seriously. But Because if you came to hear from me, boy, uh, you know, we could do this in a lot of different ways. But man, who do we need to hear from? We need to hear from the Lord. And so he's going to speak to us, and he's going to speak to us through his word. And so we make this commitment to let the word of God speak. Uh, secondly, we make the commitment to let the word of God shape us, that his word would not only come to us with clarity, but also with power, that it would be the shaping force of our lives. Instead of us trying to navigate the word of God or somehow uh, um, uh, wrap it around the lives that we live, we instead wrap our lives around his word and what he has spoken to us. And then thirdly, we let the Bible, we let the Word of God stay the Word of God, meaning um, in the middle of all of the chaos that is our world, we let it remain um, what it says about itself, that it is, it is God's Word given to us, inspired by the Holy Spirit, written by the apostles as they were carried along uh, by the Spirit. We commit to letting the Word of God stay the Word of God. And so we, we let it speak, uh, and, and we let it shape us, and we let it stay what it is. And so I just want to offer a prayer that we would do that as we dig into this passage, okay? Uh, Father, there is no, as I said, there is no worthwhile investment of a word of a man uh, here in this moment. That's just not what we're after. God, nobody gives life. Uh, nobody receives uh, anything. Um, from a man. These kind of moments, they're designed to hear from you. And so I'm praying that by your Holy Spirit, that you would do exactly what we have just said we're committed to. You would speak, you would shape us, and you would help us hold on to the commitment that the scripture that you have provided for us is the word of God to us. So we, we can't muster that up. We can't spin that up inside of ourselves. We need you to come and make that a reality in our presence, in our midst, and in our very lives. And so, God, we open ourselves to you. We open our hearts to you. We position ourselves under your authority as learners. And we ask that you would come and speak. Bring clarity and power to bear Holy Spirit on us. Advance the kingdom and do that for Jesus' sake in and among his people. And we pray in his name. And everybody said, amen. Amen, amen, amen. I uh, want to just grab something and start out here. If you'll allow me for just a moment. That's a stack of books that I worked through this week regarding this particular passage that we have out in front of us. Why is that? Well, because Peter was honest enough in the scriptures to say this in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. He says this, just as our brother Paul Paul, who wrote the book of 1 Timothy, just as our brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him, as he does in all of these letters, all his letters when he speaks uh, in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand. And you know what every one of these guys said? Man, there are some things in Paul that are really hard to understand. 
So I didn't feel so bad. I really didn't uh, when I got... The title of the sermon today uh, on this particular passage, and it's a difficult passage, but the title of the sermon is Some Clarity and Some Confusion. Uh, I almost put mostly confusion, but then I thought, no, there's just some confusion. So uh, I, I want to try to tackle this passage, and it's a difficult passage. I want to try to tackle this passage with affirming some things that we can be clear about, and then affirming some things that we still have some questions about. And you'll see, I think I have more questions than answers on this, but it's there. One of the problems of preaching through books of the Bible is you run across stuff like this, and you're like, man, we should have picked an easier book. Here's where we are in First, first Timothy excuse me, chapter 2, verse 8. I desire then that in every place that men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger uh, or quarreling. Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she's to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived, and she became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. So everybody's got that, right? You know exactly what it means, and we can pray and go home, right? Good. There's a whole stack of books up here, and everybody's just as confused as you are about this. So let me start with the things that I know are for sure, and then we'll deal with the confusion part. This is clarity, though. Um, clarity is this. One, one, there's two statements. One is there is a fundamental difference between men and women. The fact that we have to say that in these days is kind of um, its own diagnosis of just how sick our culture is. Uh, you know, the culture wants to erase or blur at, at worst, uh, excuse me, at best, erase at, be at worst the, the lines between a man and a woman or what is fundamentally male and what is fundamentally female. And so you have all of these sexuality questions. You got all of these things to just, just hang over and hang over and nobody really knows. And is it really this? Is it really that? Is it this, that, or the other? And here's the deal. This is not just biology. Um, this is not just a social norm. Uh, this is not some cons construct of, of our chronological moment right here. There is a fundamental difference between men and women. This is taught in the creation narrative, that God speaks some things to Adam, and he speaks some things to Eve, and, and it, is, it is fundamentally different, those two things are. It is a fundamental difference. There is a fundamental difference between man and woman. And then, as you carry throughout the rest of the story of the scriptures, not only do you have uh, this creation narrative where men and women are seen very differently, but also God gives specific commands to men. And he gives specific commands to women. And in these commands, what God is exposing is that there is a difference between men and women. Again, the fact that we have to say this shows just how sick our culture really is. And every cultural wind is blowing against us in this. And every you know, kind of tide is going against us in this. But there's a difference between men and women. And it's not just biological. It's not just a social construct. And it's not a matter of our moment, our chronological moment. Um, it, it, this gets exposed, if you will, I think, at the heart level, meaning if you peel back all the layers of manhood and get down to the very core of who a man is, and you peel back all the layers of womanhood and get down to the core, very core of who a woman is, that the heart level question of a man and a woman are different. And, and we've done this in relationship series, I know, uh, but the heart level question in a man and a woman is very different, and it ex it, this exposes the fundamental difference between them. The heart level question of a man is this. 
do I have what it takes? That's why your kid, my son, will go, hey, my thing got stuck in a tree. I'm thinking about climbing up there and getting it down. I've got a pole here. I could poke it out. Well, I'm thinking about climbing up here. Let's see how this goes. Okay, and so if you've got stories like that among your kids, among your boys, sons in particular, guess what? They climb the tree. They fall out. They break their arm. You're like, uh-huh, yep, you did it. Okay, you did it. Uh, Every teenage boy has had this moment. Every one of them has had this moment. They're full of courage and trying to impress somebody and part stupidity. They look at one another and go, hey, watch this. And how many ER trips have begun with the story? Hey, can you tell me what happened, sir? Well, I was standing there and I saw my buddy and I said, hey, watch this. And then we ended up at the ER. Um, You know, again, that's kind of funny. You know, in, in midlife, men go through that, and they try to answer the question, do I have what it takes? And, and it, it, you twist it just ever so slightly. Do I still have what it takes? Which is why some men struggle in their midlife years to try to get that question answered. Fundamentally, at the core of who a man is, you've got that question. That's why God gives him commands to provide for his family, to protect his family, to lead his family spiritually. You've got that question. Do I have what it takes? And that is how God goes about answering that. Everything for a man is a competition. Everything. It's why when you walked in today, if you got into ladies, you walked by a male conversation. They were talking about college football probably or about pro football that's going to happen today. They're not playing, but their team was playing. So you want to make sure that their team, and you're like, it's not your team. You're wearing a shirt. It doesn't mean, okay, that's a whole different thing. I know, I know, I know. But they're saying, hey, it, it, this is a competition. I got to make sure my team beats that team or your team. Everything's a competition, right? It's the reason why, and I'm not saying there aren't ladies who do this, but if we're just on percentage, it would be like 99.999 to 0.0001, male over female. When you get in the car and you punch in the coordinates in your GPS, or in my case, Google Maps is my you know, app of choice, and I say, hey, you know, here, Google lady, I need to get to this address, and she says, uh, you, you, know, you are 42 minutes away. You will arrive at 936. And I'm like, oh, it's on now, lady. <laughs> Men, how many are with me on this deal? Men, yeah. you're like, Hey, listen, if I can get there at 9.35, I'm getting out of the car like, boom, Google lady, I got you right here, 9.35, winner, winner, who's winning today? Oh, me, I'm winning today, thank you. Everything's a competition, even with the Google lady. Because we have in our heart this fundamental question, do I have what it takes? Um, When you add a little religion and some God in there, you know what you get? You get verse 8. I want men, I, I desire that in every place men should pray, lifting holy hands without prayer, or excuse me, without anger or quarreling. In other words, when you add a dose of God into all of this stuff, into this question, in this search for the answer to this question, you get praying sometimes along with anger and quarreling. And Paul's saying, hey, I don't want you to be anger and quarrel. That, that's not the plan here. Let's pray. Let's work on fighting the good fight. Here's what he does not say. He does not say don't fight. Men don't hear that. He says, let's fight the right enemy and in the right way. So he even says to Timothy, one chapter earlier in verse 18, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, verse 18, chapter 1, that by them you wage the good warfare. He wants you to fight. He just doesn't want you to 
fight in the wrong way or fight the wrong enemy. And so sometimes, you know, men gather together and they pray and they know that their enemy, they think that their enemy is, is sitting right over there. And so they start praying, oh God, I pray that you would help Johnny. And you're like, no, 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 that's not the way this is going to go. I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer. No anger, no quarreling. Set that stuff aside. You want to fight, let's fight this together. Let's fight the right enemy and let's fight them in the right way. Do I have what it takes? That exposes one of the fundamental differences between men and women. Secondly, uh, on this portion is that uh, women's, if the fundamental question of a man is, do I have what it takes? The fundamental question of a female is this, a woman is this, uh, do you notice me? Um, it's why my daughter this morning, after waking up at way too early, I was the only person up in the house. She woke up, though. My four-year-old, she wakes up. I'm scared, Daddy. Would you pick me? Okay, I pick you up, carry her, walking around, all that kind of stuff. And it's about that time to start getting ready. And so we're in my bathroom. I'm brushing my teeth and doing whatever I'm doing. She goes, I want to wear lipstick. <laughs> You're four. You got lipstick that your crazy aunt gave you. Go for it. Knock yourself out. Mom's still asleep. I don't care. Not Go for it. So she grabs her lipstick, too, walks over in front of the mirror, does her thing like she's been taught to do, does that. I hear it. I hear it. That's not a big surprise. Then what does she do? She turns to me and says, look, Daddy. Because what's her question? Do you notice me? It's the reason she comes in and twirls and changes dresses about every 30 minutes, it feels like, and all of this kind of stuff. I mean, it's just... It is her question. Now, not every girl is a girly girl. I get that. You may express that in a different manner. Understand this, though. That is the heart-level question. The temptation for guys in their answering their question, do I have what it takes, is to prove at the cost of another. The temptation for women to, to get that question answered in a sinful way is that they would uh, um, get noticed. They would get somebody's attention through what they wear or what they say. What they wear, what they say, and this is what Paul addresses. Look at verse 9. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper who profess godliness, for, proper for women who profess godliness with good works. So all you ladies with braided hair and gold on your earrings, now you're out. You bunch of sinners, get out of here, right? <laughs> no. What does this mean? What does this mean, right? In imperial Rome... Uh, you proved your wealth and status in society through uh, the, how much you know, braiding was in your hair and how much gold you could adorn yourself with and on and on and on. And Paul's saying, hey, listen, that's not what you want. That is a sinful way to get your attention. Now, I know, I mean, our, I know that our culture is radically different than imperial Rome. Uh, the way that women dress to get attention from men, that doesn't happen in our culture, right? So we, oh, not much has changed? The Bible speaks to that. There's nothing new under the sun. What you wear in order to get attention is a struggle to get that question answered in a sinful way. The other way is what you say or in the context in which you say it. And that's what Paul does next. And we'll talk about these verses. But he talks about women learning quietly with all submissiveness. So in a, again, we'll come back to that. The temptation is to get noticed because of what you wear or the words that you get to say. But Paul says, instead, let your good works be what draws others' attention to you and then speak for you. 
Let your good works be the thing that, gra- that uh, garners other people's attention and speaks for you. There is a fun- I know this. This passage says this. There is a fundamental difference between men and women. The second thing I know is that Paul, in this entire passage here, uh, in, from um, really kind of chapter 2, the first part of it on, uh, down through the end of chapter 3, he's trying to make sure that everybody gets it, that he wants order in the church. He is trying to bring order to the church. We'll talk about why in just a second, but order in the church and at home is the goal, is the goal. So l- look down one chapter to chapter 3, look at verse 15. L- let's start at verse 14 just to get some context. Chapter 3, verse 14. I hope to come to you soon. But I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So Paul is writing to establish order. He wants to make sure that things are in good order. It's not chaos and all of that kind of stuff. Those are two things that I can say absolutely positively. Those are clear about this passage. Now, there's a lot that I don't know about this passage. Um, there are some confusing verses that follow. So can we just read them together and all scratch our heads at the same time with the same question mark hanging? Le- verse 11, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. One of the reasons I started out with these commitments that we would let the Word of God speak and let the Word of God shape us and let the Word of God stay the Word of God is because some people approach this passage and they're like, dude, Paul was crazy when he wrote this. He'd been hitting the, and you know, he just, he was, he didn't know what he's saying. So this, don't worry about, just scratch this stuff out. The problem is it's in here. We can't just scratch it out. We need to figure out what it says. Um, I actually know more about what it doesn't say than what it says. Can I just confess that? So let's start out with what it doesn't mean. Can we start there? Here's some things that these verses cannot mean this. Number one, they cannot mean that women aren't equal. All throughout the scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, from the very beginning, um, even though they were created at different moments, God is clear that, that, the, that the creation uh, of a man and a woman is equally valuable in his sight, that a man and a woman are equally valuable in his sight. And so he says in Genesis 1, 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. What is he saying? That every male in here, X, Y chromosome, every male in here bears the image of God, meaning we've got this kind of spiritual mirror in our lives that is to reflect back to God his beauty and magnificence and incredible, um, awesome character and reflect to a watching world that same, those same attributes. And Every female in here also has this spiritual mirror that is to reflect back to God his beauty and magnificence and all the attributes that he is back to God and also to a watching world. Every man in here, every woman in here is created in the image of God, equal in value and standing before God. If you read anything into 1 Timothy, you can't read that. can't read that. Some people say, that's kind of Old Testament stuff, you know, and then the fall happened and sin happened, so they want to do all sorts of crazy stuff with Paul. Well, I'm glad you brought that up. Galatians chapter 3 says this. This is New Testament stuff. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Well, I thought you were saying that 
you know, God doesn't erase the lines. It feels like that's a, no, 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 that's not what he's doing. He's not blurring any lines between male and female. He's not blurring any lines or erasing any lines between male and female. He's saying this, that every one of us in Jesus stands before Jesus the exact same way and with the exact same need. Because male sin and female sin is still sin. And so all of us, male and female, we all stand before God and we have this tremendous and exact same need for a rescue from God to come down into our world, male world, female world, and reach down and grab our hearts and reach down and grab our hearts and drag us up out of the muck and mire that is our world, that is our darkness, that are our chains and, and keeps us locked into sin and bondage. He needs to liberate us and save us from that. Males need that, females need that. Everybody needs that. That's what he's saying. So there's co-equal. We're all co-equal. If you, it cannot mean that women are less than or less valuable in some way or aren't equal. Second thing it cannot mean. It cannot mean that women shouldn't learn. You just, oh, well. In some societies, it is, uh, education is valued, and then there are other societies where it's not. In some families, education is valued, and education is not. And so you've got here in verse 11, it's actually quite a liberating thing uh, uh, in, in 1 Timothy 2.11, let a woman learn. Do you see that? Let a woman learn. So, ladies, guess what? You get to learn right along, alongside the rest of us. And there are hard lessons, there are easy lessons, there are fun lessons, and there are lessons you're like, oh man, let's not do that again. Let a woman learn. It's actually quite liberating. In, in, in Paul's day and in Paul's case, it was one of the things where they're like, oh man, they're teaching the women too? Yes, yes, teaching the women too. And so, uh, ladies, you get to, along with the rest of us, uh, commit to the scriptures and to learning it and to taking it into our lives. Uh, thirdly, it cannot mean that women aren't gifted. Uh, when the Holy Spirit, when a person gives their life to Christ and responds to the offer of forgiveness and new life in Jesus, the Holy Spirit, the Bible says, comes to take up residence inside of us. And not only does it guarantee, um, it, Paul calls it the guarantee, the down payment of our uh, life that is yet to come on the other side of death, but it also, the, the Spirit, when he takes up residence inside of us, goes about the transformational work uh, of, of changing us, to really changing us from the inside. One of the ways that he does that is he gives us a spiritual gift with which he uses, uh, uh, he uses us to extend the kingdom, to push back the darkness. And so Paul in 1 Corinthians 12 has all of these lists about what they may be and all this kind of stuff. Here's the thing. Everybody gets a spiritual gift, not just men. Everybody does. So 1 Corinthians 12 says this. To each is, to, to, wait, to, to whom? To whom? To each. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So every female believer gets a manifestation, a spiritual gift. Every male believer gets a spiritual gift. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one, each one, each one individually as he wills. It's not that women aren't gifted. We have some women who are gifted in here to teach. We've got some women in here who are gifted to serve. We've got some women in here who are gifted to do all sorts of incredible things. If we cut off those gifts, listen to me, church family, we're cutting off God's gifts to us. We don't want to do that. We don't want to do that. So we affirm that each woman is gifted as well. Okay, fourth thing, it cannot mean this, that women are not ministers. Women are not ministers. Um, they don't serve in some way. I promise you this, that if you look around at the things that God is doing in our church, 
you will find women involved in every aspect of that. One of the great gifts that God has given to our church is Carrie Andrus. So she's, you know, with Jam right now. And, and um, man, you know, you talk about a person who adds stuff to our staff meeting. I'm just speaking of my personal experience. Adds stuff to our staff meeting and, uh, you know, sets up a great kids program and on and on and on. We could talk about that all day long. But listen, I mean, that's one of the great gifts that God has given to our church, and she is a minister in that way. So it doesn't mean that women aren't ministers. This is, uh, you know, just push this topic a little bit. Here's Romans 16, 1 and 2. I commend you to our sister Phoebe, a what? A deaconess. Now, that's a weird word. Of the church at Sincrae there, uh, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of saints. So if Timothy shows up, welcome him. If Paul shows up, welcome him. If Phoebe shows up, welcome her in the exact same way. And he says that she's a deaconess, meaning he, she excuse me, is giving her life away in service. This is what a deacon or a deaconess does, gives her life away in service. This is God uh, using Phoebe to serve the church. It doesn't mean women aren't ministers. To be clear, if you're sitting in the room right now and you're a member of our church family, you know what you are? A minister. You don't need a title. You don't need an office. You're a minister. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul says, uh, God gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers to equip the saints. Who are the saints? That's you. To equip the saints for the works of service that the body of Christ can be built up. Who gets to do the works of service? You do. You get to do the ministry. And there's so much about my role as a pastor and other people's role on staff as equipping people to do the work of ministry. Everybody is a minister. If you're a member of our church family, you're a minister. Everybody's a minister. Uh, number five, it doesn't mean that women can't speak. It doesn't mean that women can't speak. Um, Again, we have women gifted here in, in uh, incredible ways, and God is using them in multiple um, settings to speak to his people. Uh, and I love that, I do. Uh, so much so that in the first service, one of our ladies, gifted teacher, she and I were talking about it, and I said, here, here's my sermon notes. Why don't you just take this, and I'll go home. Because I was pretty not happy with having to preach this text. I'm like, here, you want it? It's good. She's gifted. Why is that? Because God's gifted it to her, and she can speak into the life of our church. Uh, again, I just point to, um, you know, Carrie. I point to other people who are here. Again, gifted women uh, who speak. Um, a couple of weekends ago, my wife and I were um, doing a Labor Day conference um, for Pine Cove, one of the organizations that we love and try to give back to. We were doing a marriage thing. We did our little marriage talk, and um, uh, afterwards, a guy comes up to us. He goes, man, I'm a counselor, and we're like, oh, great. And he said, this is the absolute best weekend on marriage I've ever been a part of. And I stuck my chest out. I was like, well, I'm glad you liked what I had to say. No, that's not what I did. Why? Because my wife and I got to do this. She got to speak and I got to speak. And we hopefully encouraged some people um, in their marriages. So it doesn't mean that women can't speak. I'll just give you a couple of examples from the scripture. Acts 21. We entered the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who did what? They prophesied. They spoke the word of God as God gave them utterance. Um, and, well, that, that's unmarried women. Well, okay, good. I'm glad you brought that up. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. Can I just be honest? I have no idea what the head covering thing is about. I don't have a clue. That's a different passage, a different day, different question. 
Look at the first like six or seven words. But every wife who prays or prophesies, the women are engaged in ministry there. It doesn't mean that a woman can't speak. So when he says, uh, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness, I don't permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over men. He's not including some version of speaking. So uh, that's can't mean that. Number six, it cannot mean that women can't help men. Even between services, my wife shoots me a text and says this. Hey, listen, this was a little unclear. You may want to clean this up. What is she doing? She's helping me and helping you. It doesn't mean that women can't help men. Uh, some guys, uh, they don't take it, but man, it's good, it's good when we listen to the voices that God raises up. In Acts 18, 26, um, Paul, uh, excuse me, Apollos is at the church in Ephesus where Timothy is the pastor. Uh, Apollos began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. They're just trying to help this brother out. Lastly, number seven, these verses, as confusing they are, it does not mean that women get to heaven because of their kids. Yet she will be saved through childbearing. That's a messed up phrase. When we get to heaven, if you get there before I do, let's just ask Paul. Hey, Paul, seriously, man, could you, next time you write that, could we do better? It doesn't mean that women get to heaven because of the kids. That's not what this means. We could talk about all the crazy things that people have done with that. That's not what it means. Um, the scripture is clear from the get-go. And when you look at the New Testament, it is a, a theme, a thread running through every book. There is a singular way for any man or woman to be made right with God. And it's not through kids. <laughs> it's not. There is a sole way that any person is made right with God. And there it says in Acts 4, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There is a way single way for a person to be made right with God, and that is to give your life to Jesus. He has come, and he's lived perfectly, and he's died sacrificially, and he has risen victoriously, and he is going to return also. And what we need to wrap our minds around is that he is offering to us forgiveness of sin and a whole new kind of life, a life that is indestructible even by death in relationship with God. And so we then get the opportunity to respond to that in faith and say, yes, I'm giving my life to you. Please forgive me of my sin. Please come into my life and take control. I'm giving my life to you. That's when a person, that is how a person comes to, uh, comes to be made right with God. It's not by this. It's not by childbearing. It's whatever the heck that means. It is by giving your life to Jesus and to responding to him in faith. And if you're here this morning, and that hasn't been part of your story yet, here in just a few minutes, I'm going to wrap it up and try to get this thing done. But uh, man, here in a few minutes, I would love to visit with you about what it means to give your life to Jesus, because there is no other name. Not your name, not my name, not the name of this church or anybody else. There is no other name given among men by which we must be saved, but the name of Jesus, him and him alone. It doesn't mean women are going to go to heaven because they're kids. Okay, so here's what I think it means. And I want to emphasize, this is what I think it means, because it's a confusing passage. And tomorrow I may change my mind. I mean, i got to be honest. It's just like all of these people were saying, yeah, we're confused too, and some of them disagreed with one another, and they're all really, really smart. So here's what I think it means. Uh, number one, there, there is a created order to be acknowledged. This is what he says, specifically, 
Uh, Adam was formed first, then Eve. Adam wasn't deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. So there's a created order, meaning God created man first, and then he created Eve as his ezer, as his strong helper. And that, that means something. That's important, Paul is saying. That's important. Um, in Genesis 2, it was Adam, then Eve. And in Genesis 3, the, the deceit of the serpent came to Eve, and she took the, uh, the, the fruit and then ate of it. And then it, the Scripture says in Genesis 3, gave it to her husband who was with her. Now, there's a whole sermon on male passivity right there. Why he wasn't stepping on the head of the snake instead of off playing Xbox or whatever he was doing. Oh, you went there. Sorry about that. That wasn't in the notes. It just happened. But while he was doing whatever he was doing, he wasn't paying attention to what he should have been, and she was deceived. Um, and, and the consequence of that, God speaks to Eve, and he says, you're going to have multiplied chain of, uh, pain in childbirth, and your desire will be for your husband's position, and he will rule over you. So the battle of the sexes began right there in Genesis 3 because of sin. So there is this created order that we're supposed to acknowledge, and this is what he's describing here in, in verses 13 and 14. And um, so, you know, if you got any chauvinism in you, the males are, all the men are in, ah, that's right, 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 men first. Right, right, right. That means that we're on the hook. <laughs> like far from being off the hook, you know, like, well, women aren't supposed to lead. Right, 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 right. Okay, then who is? We are at home and at church, through our service and through our sacrifice. That doesn't, guys, that doesn't get us off the hook. It doesn't let us point the finger and go, golly, if Eve had only done it, done it, Adam was with her and he didn't step up. The call is for men to step up. There are so many ladies in this church who fulfill this passage, who are, who are, I mean, living out what they're saying, meaning they are adorning their lives with good works and working a full-time job. So we get to step up. In this created order, I, I think then childbirth becomes kind of a picture, an example of this. Women acknowledge that there's this created order that God has set in place, and then they follow Jesus with faith and love and holiness and self-control. One more time. Of course it does not mean, it cannot mean that women are saved by childbirth. That just... What it means is, I think it's a picture of, of women recognizing this created order and saying, okay, God, I'm following you. That's, that's what I want to do. And secondly, it, I think it means that there's a commanded order in the church. There's a created order that God has done from the beginning. There's also this commanded order uh, in the church. And look back at verse 12 again. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over man. Rather, she's a man quiet. Now hold your finger right there and then look over in chapter 5. Look at verse 17 in chapter 5. It says, let the elders who rule well, rule is the same word, exercise authority. So let the elders who exercise authority well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So we've got the same concept here that he um, specifically, because he's establishing order in the church, that he specifically hands to this group of men called these elders, right? This, this plurality of godly men who are responsible for this. There are, there are responsibilities. God has given a certain responsibility to men in the church. It is leadership through preaching and teaching, and that, that is marked by sacrifice and service. That, that's what it's primarily marked by. 
It doesn't mean that women can't speak at times. It doesn't mean that women don't have any input. We're not doing any of that. It just means that there's a responsibility specifically given to men. Look at verse 517 again. Let the elders who exercise authority well be considered worthy of double honor. It is primarily leadership through sacrifice and service and involving teaching, preaching, especially at church, and again, for the health of the body. And because he's given them responsibility, he's also given them authority to do that. And this is not an authority, a top-down kind of thing. Anytime you talk, talk about authority in the Bible, you're always talking about coming up underneath somebody to lift them up. It's a matter of coming up underneath the body of Christ to raise her up to Jesus and to the standards that he's provided. So elders then, this group, this plurality of godly men are to lead and preach and teach um, and they are responsible for this. And then, I, I, I will be honest, this is my personal conviction as to how this all shakes out in the church. When you've got the top portion right, then the, there's a whole lot of freedom underneath that. There's a whole lot of freedom. And different churches express it different ways. Good news. I don't have to worry about how that church down the way expresses it. I'm not responsible for them. I'm responsible for our church. And so if we can understand what God has given, the responsibility that he's given here, then the rest of it can begin to shake itself out. Here's why, though. This is the, this is the key for me. This is why there's this commanded order. This is why it's so on Paul's heart. Because if we can get the house in order, then, the, then the church, if the church can be in order, then the church can be healthy. And if the church can be healthy, the gospel goes forth. That's what he's after. That's what he's always after. Let's, let's put things in order so there's not chaos. When there's not chaos and all, you know, all this craziness happens, then there's, then there's good order, and that order will bring health. And when health happens, the gospel goes out. And I just one more time point you to this area of ours that we call you know, affectionately the 4B area, from the Beltway to the beach, from the Bay to Brazoria County. 500 plus thousand people. 300,000 plus, at least that many who are lost. At least that many. And Paul looks at situations like ours, and he goes, let's get the house in order so that it can be healthy, so that the gospel can go forth. That's what matters the most, is that the gospel goes forth. If the house isn't in order, and if the church isn't healthy, the gospel then sounds like lawlessness instead of liberty. And that's not, I mean, he's in the business of breaking chains. He's in the business of rescuing people's lives. And that's what he wants. So he's going to set the house in order. Timothy, do it like this. This will produce health and the gospel will go forth. I think that's what this means. As difficult and crazy as a passage as it is, I think that's what he's after. So I'm going to pray. And ask God to just let this, all of this settle down wherever it needs to settle. And, and when I pray, here's what I want you to ask too. You ask, God, am I doing what I am supposed to be doing to put the house in order to promote health in order that the gospel can go forward? Let's pray together, okay?